If you'd open again to Acts 5 in your Bibles, verse 17 through 42, we're in a two-part series here on the triumph of the gospel. Acts chapter 5, 17 to 42, you always learn so much more and God can speak to you through the word if you follow along in the reading. We talked a little bit about persecution last time, the Chinese church. We at Hope Bible Church by no means can be compared with the opposition that the Chinese Christians are experiencing now or the Christians under the Roman regime or even the Jews when they faced the wicked king uh, Antiochus Epiphanes. They still got the word out in the midst of persecution. We can't compare ourselves to them, but we do have a little bit of a story to tell. For it is God who is working among us. I don't believe the full story of Hope Bible Church has ever been told. Lord willing, someone will take it upon themselves to to lay it all out. But whoever does needs to tell the story correctly. For the core of our story is not so much about individual people or what contribution this person had or that person had. It's not so much about the big events that we as a church plan Even the locations we've been to, that's really only part of the story. Not even the milestones that we claim is the whole story. The story of Hope Bible Church is the story of the triumph of God's Word, preached and taught, of God taking simple folk like you and me, getting them to submit to His own Word, and then showing what He can do through those people. It's really the story of an open Bible, which I hope you have by now, an exposited Bible, an explained Bible to change lives. And as it changes lives, it launches ministries. And as it launches ministries, it affects more lives, and the Word of God multiplies itself and it spreads. We are in the midst of looking at the feeble attempts on the part of the earthly authorities in the first century to bottle up and contain the spread of the gospel. In our first message last time, we saw the attempt to imprison the gospel by imprisoning the apostles. The word of God we saw could not be locked up. When they tried it, it just didn't work. The angel came and let them out, and there they were preaching in the temple again. Today, we're going to see three more attempts at preventing the gospel to be spread. Let's read again the portion we covered last time, verses 17 to 26, kind of to bring our minds back into it, and then we'll move on forward to the other three. Verses 17 through 26. But the high priest rose up along with all of his associates, that is, the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with jealousy. They laid hands on the apostles and put them in a public jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the gates of the prison, and taking them out, he said, Go, stand, and speak to the people in the temple the whole message of this life. Upon hearing this, they entered into the temple about daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest and his associates came, they called the council together, even all the senate of the sons of Israel, and sent orders to the prison house for them to be brought. But the officers who came did not find them in the prison, and they returned and reported back, saying, we found the prison house locked quite securely and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened up, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them as to what would come of this. 
But someone came and reported to them, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain went along with the officers and proceeded to bring them back without violence, for they were afraid of the people that they might be stoned. And that kind of brings us up to the second attempt that they are now going to have to bottle up the message to keep it from spreading, and that's attempt number two. We're going to say the gospel of Jesus cannot be outlawed, that is, made against the law. The gospel of Jesus cannot be outlawed. Not that people aren't going to make it against the law, but it can't effectively be outlawed. That takes us into verses 27 through 32. Let's keep reading. When they had brought them, they stood them before the council. The high priest questioned them, saying, we gave you strict orders, there it is, not to continue teaching in this name, and yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. I think there's a lot of frustration in those words. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey what? God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus whom you had put to death by hanging him on a cross. He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. As the account is built around the actions of the high priest and then what God does to counter those actions, we see again the high priest stepping forward bringing the council together, and then he has the apostles brought in. He has the apostles stand before the council as they are seated. This is the usual posture among the Jews. The judges would be seated. The defendants would be standing. That's another little hint, by the way, of the historical accuracy of the accounts in the book of Acts. This squares with what we know outside of the New Testament, the way the Jews would conduct themselves. The high priest would preside over all things. It's obvious that he hasn't changed yet. It hasn't occurred to him what he should be thinking about yet. They're proceeding as if almost nothing has happened. So as the procedure would go, there would be a time of questioning. The high priest would lead and the questions would be asked. This is indeed what they did. And they're going to now ask questions of the apostles. Now, I want to ask you, if you were standing there and you were questioning them, what is the very first question that you would want to ask the apostles? How did you get out of prison? How did that happen? There's absolutely nothing about that here. Maybe they were too embarrassed by what had happened. Never underestimate the blindness of pride and pomp from leaders. Instead, their question is more like a frustrated and angry statement. We gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name, and yet you filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. There is their honor and their pride that has been damaged, and their their jealousy is coming to the fore. They took their own authority very seriously. They told the apostles before, they'd made it very clear to them, You are not allowed to speak in the name of Jesus. But the apostles had made it very clear back to them. We must obey God rather than men. They were given strict orders. But in the apostles' minds, God's orders were greater than the orders of the council. In their minds, it was the law of God that was more important than the law of men. We should learn from this, don't you think? 
There is an appropriate time where you're told to do something you're not allowed to do, and you must obey, you must disobey, excuse me, that rule. You must disobey that law. There will come a time where the law is immoral and you have to disobey it. And you have to determine now before that time happens that I will do that and I will suffer the consequences. Listen, the gospel of Jesus Christ is something that we should be willing to die for. It is the hill on which we're willing to die. The gospel of Jesus must not be compromised. The gospel of Jesus must not be muzzled. We must never agree anywhere not to speak the gospel of Jesus Christ. They set a good example for us. They took their stand. I'm sure they'd be willing to obey many things. I'm sure they'd be willing to give out honor to whom honor was due. I'm sure they'd be willing to order things if if they were causing problems with too many people in an area. I'm sure they would have cooperated with the authorities. But when they were told, don't speak in the name of Jesus, they didn't malign the authorities. They still respected the authorities. They just said, we have to obey God rather than men. That's an example for us. The command they were given not to teach or preach in the name of Jesus was just not something they could do. And really, for the Sanhedrin, for the Senate, that was the crux, that name Jesus. That was the problem. That name, from their standpoint, just wouldn't go away. Here, this, this prophet from Galilee, born in Nazareth, they thought, from the town of Nazareth, as it was said, a Nazarene, He rode into Jerusalem and all these followers were waving palm branches and and, and they came out to to Jesus and said, rebuke your disciples. And Jesus said, well, if they don't say it, the rocks will cry out, Hosanna. Remember that? They can't get rid of this name Jesus. He's everywhere. They put him on a cross. They mock him. That should do away with him, right? And then his name is back again. What a precious name the name Jesus is, right? That was not a name that Mary and Joseph chose for Jesus. You do realize that was a divinely appointed name that he would have. In Luke one thirty one, it says, uh, the angel said to Mary, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and you will bear a son and you shall call his name, what? Jesus. That's going to be his name. What does that name mean? It means Savior. The name saves. In John 20, 31, at the end of the Gospel of John, it says, These things have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. You want to have life? You want to have eternal life? Believe in the name of Jesus Christ. That name everyone is called to submit to in the entire world. Everyone in the entire world is called to submit to that name Jesus as King. The message that Peter had for the Jews was repent. What does that mean? Change your mind. Repent and be baptized. Show that you're going to submit yourself to the teachings of Jesus Christ. He is Messiah. He said that on the day of Pentecost. Repent and each of you be baptized. There it is, in the name of Jesus Messiah. The power of this name heals. In Acts 3.6 it says, Peter said, I don't possess silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene walk, and so the the lame man was healed. There is no other way to be accepted by God in the heavens except through the name of Jesus Christ. You go to God in any other name, you go in a name that is a sinner and rejected by God. There's only one name that was not a sinner, only one life that was ever lived that God completely approved of, and it was Jesus Christ. Don't you dare try to stand in the presence of a holy God in your own name, or Muhammad, or Buddha, or Mary, or any other name. It won't do you any good. It is this name, and that's why Satan hates it, because it's a powerful name. It saves, it heals, it transforms. He's real. 
But Satan working through these men, whether they knew or didn't know, they gave strict orders, stop teaching in that name. That would have ended Christianity right there. They can't get that name to go away. 2,000 years have come and gone. Boy, if they could have been there for the whole time, imagine their frustration now. That name is all over the place, right? There's so many songs about them. <laughs> you Google Jesus, it's more hits than anybody. There's a warning in Psalm 2, verse 12, to all of the authorities in the world when Jesus comes back. It says, do homage to the Son of God so that he doesn't become angry with you. For you could perish in his way. His wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are those who take refuge in him. You want Jesus as your Savior? Good. You don't have Jesus as your Savior, then you will stand in front of him when his wrath comes and you won't be able to stand. Please see the power in the name. In your own life, please understand that that is what Satan is trying to pry you away from, trust in the name or speaking the name. Where are you? What do you do during the week? What contacts do you have? What influences do you have? Well, Satan doesn't want you using that name. You can use the name God. That's fine. If you pray in public, pray in the name of God. Nobody's going to be bothered with that. You pray in the name of Jesus. That's the whole point. Give God the glory through his son, Jesus Christ. God wants to be known not as God, but as the God and father of who? Jesus Christ. Speak up in Jesus's name. You'll find the opposition. You some innocuous God out there. Everyone's got their own definition for God. Satan's not upset with that. He thinks he's God. He wants to silence the name Jesus. That's the whole point. You're in the workplace. They say you can't ever speak in the name of Jesus. Don't you ever agree to that? It's against the Constitution, first of all. You're in school. They say you're not allowed to write a paper about Jesus. Don't ever agree to that. It's not, a, not something you're allowed to be quiet about. Obviously, do your work, work hard, don't be obnoxious at work, do your assignments, I'm not saying that, but at the right time, wisely, in the right place, you speak up in the name of the Son of God and give him that name, Jesus. And then you be ready to take whatever comes your way. Be ready. You know, in 3 John 7, it talks about supporting missionaries, and it says, they went out for the sake of the name. Don't you love that? They went out for the sake of the name. People are out there suffering for the sake of the name. What about you? What's your connection to the name? Are you really a believer? Do you really put that name out in front of you? Do your family know that that name defines you? That you're a follower of him? Are you ashamed of Christ? According to the high priest, these apostles were not ashamed. They filled Jerusalem. <laughs> they filled Jerusalem with the name. Everywhere is the name Jesus. You go around the corner talking about Jesus. You know, Go up to the temple to talking about Jesus. High priest must have been like, ah! What a successful apostolic witness. Remember what Jesus told him to do? You will be my witnesses. Boy, were they enthusiastic about that. Are you enthusiastic about your witness? You have a derived witness like I do. We didn't see Jesus risen from the dead. If you think you did, I want to talk to you after the service because you got issues. You're not 2,000 years old. There's no special visions coming to you about Jesus' resurrection. Sorry. Don't buy any of that. He had his eyewitnesses. He chose them. He laid his hands on them. He commissioned them. They were at the beginning of the church. They're called apostles. They've already died. They were his literal eye and ear witnesses. They touched him, as they said. They ate with him. You and I have a derived witness from theirs. We take their witness, and then we witness how God works in our life. Are you enthusiastic about your witness? Do you give your witness? This is where it really matters, right, that we're out there speaking. Why do we come together to get strengthened, right? Why do we go back out to witness, right? We gather for the saints, we scatter for the ain'ts. You know how it is. Go out there and tell them they ain't yet Christians, and they need to be because there's only life in that name. 
That is the kind of permeation we want. When we talk about wanting to do a better job with electronics and being on the radio and having publishing and all the rest of that, what is it about? It's about the name Jesus. That's the name we want getting famous. Do you understand that? We want it spreading everywhere. We want to do what we can do, whether we're editors or whether we're organizing an event or whether we're helping with this or that. Get the word out and get the doctrine that goes along with that out. Well, the high priest was concerned about the name, but there's another thing he was concerned about, and that is that they were attempting to bring this man's blood on them. To lay the blood on someone was to accuse them of murder. But there's no denying it. It was that council that was responsible. We say the crucifixion of Jesus. Let's change that. They were responsible for the murder of Jesus. They murdered Christ because he did no wrong. Jesus committed no crime. The Sanhedrin had sinned greatly against God. They'd sinned against the law of Moses that said you couldn't do that. They condemned an innocent man. In Acts 2.23, Peter told the people of Jerusalem, you nailed Jesus to a tree. In Acts 4.10, Peter again indicted them for crucifying the Messiah. In truth, they were responsible for Jesus' blood. Peter knew there was no path back to God except they confessed their sins. That's also an example for us in evangelism, isn't it? You're out there and you want to talk to people about Jesus. You want them to come to God. Guess what? There's no chance for that person to come back to God until they admit what they are, and that is they have violated God's commandments. They have to admit they're sinners. They have to admit their life isn't good enough. They have to admit I'm not basically a good person. They have to confess that about their life. That's why Peter keeps pressing it on it. You murdered him. You killed him. You hung him on a tree. You crucified him. You turned him over to the Romans. Peter won't shut up about that. Same thing in our evangelism, but you're a sinner. But you violated God's commandments, but you haven't lived the way God says you do. And God is holy. He won't let you escape. If that's not part of your evangelism, you won't be effective. The person that responds to a a feel-good message isn't really a convert to Christianity. What a great example of evangelism, bringing conviction of sin that must accompany the preaching of the gospel. There's no easy believism. There's no easy path back to Jesus. You want Christ, admit how you failed God. You want eternal life, give up this life to gain that life. They had to repent. James 5.20 says, He who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. It's a good work that you do when you go out there to bring people to God and to save their soul from death. But here we see these worldly men. They're dressed up in the garb of religion, but their heart is worldly. They're refusing to admit that great mistake they made. Instead, they're just exploding with frustration all over their faces. But we know in the end, God's will is established. Psalm 93, 2, your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting, it says of God. Much better to be on God's side. Notice Peter's response in verse 29. Peter's answer as the spokesman for the apostles is very simple. He repeats what he said before, we must obey God rather than men. It's simple, it's short, it's a clear message. It makes the issue of authority very clear to them. Men's authorities are always to be obeyed as long as they're fitting in what God has told them to do. But when they cross the line and they tell us, you have to violate your conscience and obedience to Scripture, that is not where we can obey. And we won't. Again, when you are at work or when you are at school or where you're out there and you're being a faithful worker and you're getting your job done and you're doing what you should be and you're getting there on time and someone says you're not allowed to talk about Jesus, you never, ever agree to that, ever. 
It's un-American. It's unchristian. It's against God. Never agree to be silent about Christian truths, not with your relatives, not anywhere. God wants you to speak wisely at the right times, in the right portions, but to speak. Notice next Peter goes right into speaking the gospel, verses 30 and 31. Let's look at it again. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus whom you had put to death by hanging him on a cross. He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses of these things. So is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. It's the God of our fathers. He's standing before the Jews and he's saying the God of our fathers. He's including them on the council, almost like he's appealing to them. Come on, guys. It's the God of our fathers who raised Jesus from the dead. This should be our greatest moment for all of history. We've been waiting for the Messiah to come, and he's come, and he's now been risen from the dead. This is your opportunity. We're standing before this whole Sanhedrin, and and here you are, and I'm telling you as a witness, and the Holy Spirit is witnessing by all of the signs, this is our moment. What was God's opinion of the life of Jesus? Very simply, he didn't let him stay dead. Did you notice other people, when they die, they stay dead? Did you notice that? You notice you go by the cemetery. I know they talk about zombies. It's not really real. They're still down in there. You know, I don't want to dig up and, you know, I don't want to try to find that. But they're down in there. Unless someone stole something, they're still down in there. When God, when God saw Jesus die, he said, that's not right, and he raised him from the dead because he was the perfect life. You only die when you have sin. He had no sin. What did God think of Jesus' life? We don't need to ask him. He already said, Rise, raise him from the dead. That's why we follow him. God accepted him. What an astonishing claim. They were standing there telling this council a man was raised from the dead. Think about that. Think about how hard it would be, even with a straight face, if someone was lying to get across a lie like that. Yeah, a man was raised from the dead. Not raised from the dead, died again. Raised from the dead, stayed alive, was seen over a period of 40 days by hundreds of people. And all of them are here, by the way. You could check out any of their witness if you want to. It was an irrefutable witness. People say, well, there are other religions that have said someone was raised from the dead. No, not really. Those are myths, and they start hundreds of years after the supposed life of the person, and the person that was raised from the dead is not raised from the dead. They turn into a tree, or they turn into a star, or they're burned, and they go into the atmosphere. That's not what happened with Jesus. To to say that a man was raised from the dead, and we saw him, and we touched him, and we ate him, ate with him, (laughs) ate him, ate with him, we were there, we leaned on him. We are handled him in not one day, not one quick vision, and not two or three of us, but many times over many different places. And now we're telling you he's alive from the dead. To pull that kind of a lie off, that's impossible. Nobody's ever even tried that in human history. It worked. There were tens of thousands of these, some of them educated Jews that were saying, this must be true. It wasn't a religious story. It was a fact of history. The Sanhedrin is not sitting there saying, look, we know he wasn't raised from the dead. Would you please pipe down about that? What an idiot story. They would have done it if they could. They had nothing. The hardest place in the world to convince the world that Jesus would be raised from the dead would be in Jerusalem if it didn't actually happen. That would be the hardest place in the world to pull off a lie like that. What an astonishing claim. It's it's astonishing, but it's true. 
Well, these Jewish men were trying to discredit Christianity right as it was getting started. They couldn't say, look, Jesus wasn't raised from the dead. They just said, quit teaching about him. Stop it. God raised Jesus from the dead, but what did you guys do with him? You killed him. You killed him. God raised him. You guys looked at him and you wanted him dead. God looked at him and said, I want him alive. And they did. It was on them. Luke 22, 2, it's very clear. The chief priests and the scribes were seeking how they might put Jesus to death, for they were afraid of the people. What did they do? They took Jesus to Pilate, remember? Because the Jews didn't have the right of capital punishment, so they took him to the Romans. And then they cried out for the crucifixion. They won the crowd over, and they said, crucify, crucify. It was all on them. When he was hanging on the cross, they mocked him. They said, you saved others, save yourself. Come on down from the cross if you're really the Messiah. God had him die, and they were beating their chest. They figured they won. They went away. But three days later, on the third day, Christ arose. Yes? And this isn't even Easter. But we say it every Sunday. Verse 31, he is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior. By the way, Jesus' resurrection was not the end. After that, he was exalted, right? That's an important part of Christian teaching. And it always has been from the very beginning, the exaltation of Jesus. Forty days after he convinced the eyewitnesses of his, his bodily resurrection, Acts begins in chapter 1 with this account, Jesus' ascension. He was exalted. Upsao means to lift up and raise with honor. In Hebrews chapter 7, verse 26, it says, Jesus is separated from sinners and is exalted above the heavens. In Acts 2.23, it says, Jesus has been exalted to the right hand of God. What's the right hand of God? What's so special about the right hand of God? The right hand of a king was the seat of privilege in a kingdom, and God gave him the seat of privilege in the entire universe. There's no one higher than him. There's no one greater than him. Peter also glorifies Jesus by mentioning two of the offices that Jesus filled. He calls him a prince and a savior. What does that mean? Jesus rules, Jesus delivers. He's a ruler and he's a savior. Some people want Jesus to save him, but they don't want him to rule over him. You can't have it that way. He's both. He's a prince and he's a deliverer. And he's the full package. You can have him as a deliverer if you accept him as your prince and your ruler. He's a monarch. No, that's not even good enough. Prince, no, that's not even good enough. He's king of all kings, yes? He'll have that name when he comes back. Anyone who claims to believe in Jesus must submit his heart to his teachings and rule. But look at the two purposes and outcomes of the exaltation of Jesus. He was exalted into the heavens, and it actually says here, if you read this carefully, it says, to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. It's amazing that as hard as these Jews have been, Peter is still appealing evangelistically to them right now. And he's saying, do you know that Jesus was exalted to the right hand of God so from that position of authority, he could use his authority to grant repentance to the nation of Israel and bring them back to him. He wanted to give forgiveness of sins to the nation of Israel. This is amazing. He's still appealing to the Jews. He still wants them to have their sins forgiven. He's still the evangelist here. And please notice, God has to grant faith. God has to grant repentance. When you see someone believe, you might say, that's on them. They believe that's true. But God had to grant the ability to do that because of the blindness of their eyes to their own sin. There will come a point in time in Israel's history where God will open their eyes in mass and Israel as a nation will see, oh my goodness, we did crucify our Messiah. He did come. It really was Yeshua. He really was our prince and our king. We, and we've been fighting him for 2,000 years and when, when they believe in mass, it'll be 
the return of Jesus Christ. Paul makes that point in Romans 11. He said, if when the Jews rejected their king, it resulted in something so good as the gospel going out to all the other nations and all of us got saved and all of us got to be put in the spiritual kingdom of God, if the rejection of the Jewish king by the Jews resulted in such a blessing to the world, imagine what it'll be like when the Jews finally figured out and accept their king. What it'll be is a thousand-year reign of Christ on earth. It'll be literally paradise. And then Peter seals his words with what? They know. We are the formal witnesses of this. And he throws in, so is the Holy Spirit. How can you fight him? How can you resist the Holy Spirit? Look at what he's doing. Do you think I could raise a lame man from the dead? Come on, guys. And so they had outlawed the gospel, but they couldn't outlaw the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ cannot be outlawed. They tried, they failed. You can't shut up about the Prince of Life, the Savior of the world. Now we come to the third attempt in verses 33 through 39, the third attempt to bottle up the gospel, and that is the gospel of Jesus cannot be killed. Look at verse 33. But when they heard this, that this was their opportunity, right, to repent, this was their opportunity to soften their hearts, this was their opportunity as a formal acceptance of Jesus as Messiah, this was the opportunity for them to get their kingdom, but instead it says when they heard this, they were cut to the quick. They were as angry as could be. And they intended to what? Kill them. But, verse 34, amazing. But a Pharisee, guys, don't miss that. A Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, respected by all the people, stood up in the council and gave orders to put the men outside for a short time. And he said to them, men of Israel, take care what you propose to do with these men. For some time ago, Theodos rose up claiming to be somebody, and a group of about 400 men joined up with him, but he was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After this man, Judas of Galilee rose up in the days of the census and drew away some people after him. He too perished, and all those who followed him were scattered. Verse 38, so in the present case, I say to you, stay away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or action is of men, it will be overthrown. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them or else you may even be found fighting against God. Man, a Pharisee. It's very clear from verse 33, they intended to kill the apostles. They wanted to put them away. They intended, actually that verb there, bulamai, it means it was their will, it was their purpose to kill them. Their frustration and their jealousy led them to a boiling point. They were cut to the quick. Maybe some of them even yelled out. They were angry. Yes, they wanted to kill them. Yes, they were ready to slay all of the, the witnesses of Jesus. Remember, they plotted to kill Jesus and they carried out their dastardly plan. They'd already warned Peter and John. The problem was growing out of hand. They needed definitive action. This made sense to them. They had the means. They had the intent to kill them. One wonders how did Christianity ever make it out of the cradle of Jerusalem? How did that ever happen? It's a great question. This, again, is one of the great apologetics for the truthfulness of Christianity above all other religions. 
It really should have been put down. They never should have been able to convince people someone was raised from the dead because Jesus was killed right there in Jerusalem, but it had to be factual. It should have been stopped because the authorities hated it and they had the power to put it down, but it wasn't stopped. A natural movement would have been quelled. That's what Gamaliel was saying. But God was behind this movement. God was working his power into this movement. God rules over all things. Yes, also the mouths of unbelievers. Do you believe that? And so God provided providential protection, not from an angel sent from heaven this time, but from the mouth of a Pharisee. Gamaliel, who is this guy? Gamaliel had heavy weight and great stature in Judaism in those days. Verse 34 at the beginning says he was a Pharisee. Pharisees were on the ruling body of the Jews as well, but they did not have as much power as the Sadducees. Pharisees were more popular, however, with the people. If a Pharisee gave advice on the council, those that were of the priestly side of things tended to follow that advice because they understood the Pharisees were better connected with the people and they didn't want to start riots. They didn't want Rome to be upset. And so if the Pharisees thought something was going to upset the people, the Sadducees would say, okay, maybe we should listen to this. These were politically correct kind of guys. They were political considerations going on in their minds. By the way, the Pharisees were more... Uh, in common with the followers of Jesus theologically than the Sadducees were as well. The Pharisees believed in a resurrection of the body from the dead. The Pharisees believed that God was still working in the present day, and Sadducees did not believe in anything supernatural. Does that sound familiar? They also, Pharisees, believed in the literal fulfillment of the prophecies. Jesus had taught that. The Pharisees believed in life after death. The Sadducees did not. Gamaliel was a teacher of the law, and he'd learned some things from the law. The teachers of the law would expound the law of Moses. They would learn from the law of Moses, and, and, and he learned some things from that. And he had learned a lot. He was a great teacher. He's referred to even in the rabbinic literature outside of the Bible. He was the son or possibly the grandson of Hillel, the great uh, teacher of Israel as well. And Gamaliel had a grandson. He also named Gamaliel, and he would become a leading Pharisee later in that first century. In the Mishnah, it says of Gamaliel, when Rabban Gamaliel, the elder, died, the glory of the law ceased, and purity and abstinence died. Man, this was a guy that had a lot of influence and was highly regarded. He was kind of a high-up kind of a guy. We Christians know one of Gamaliel's pupils. His name is Saul, later to be called Paul. In Acts 22.3, Paul said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated under Gamaliel, strictly according to the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, just as you all are today. He was talking to the Jews there. So this teacher was more revered than other teachers. I'm sure that's in part why he ventured to offer his advice to the entire council and order himself, the disciples, to leave the council. In the the entire narrative, you can say this whole of chapter 5 comes down and focuses on the words that come out of the mouth of this Pharisee. It's all focused on him. His words actually become the means by which Luke can tell his story about how God preserved the apostles so the word of God would continue to spread. Amazingly, God prevented their killing because of his word. And he says basically four things. I'm going to do this quickly to the councils. First, he tells them, take care, verse 35. Pay careful attention to this, in other words. 
He's saying, look, there's a danger here that's being overlooked. You're not seeing it. Take care. This whole suggestion of the death penalty appeared to Gamaliel to be rash and to be ill-advised, and so he says, take care. Secondly, he wants to review the previous failed movements in verses 36 and 37. These were two Jewish movements that had happened. The first attempt failed. The second attempt failed. They had a following for a while. They had a charismatic figure. They had a guy people were going after. And they, and they had a movement, and it was zealous, but then it just fizzled out. It died out. Gamaliel said, look at the recent history that's happened here in Israel. You have two examples, a clear pattern here. By the way, historians struggle with who Theodos is. It's not the one that's more commonly known, which would be later. The timing doesn't fit, uh, one that Josephus talks about. Uh, The other events in this here, the size that are mentioned and all that, are something different. So people believe this is something that arose during the time of right after Herod the Great's death, and that there was an unknown Theodos that caused a rebellion at that time, because the timing fits. When you go to Judas of Galilee, the next example, that is one that historians are well aware of. He started a rebellion in protest to the census under Quirinius that Luke mentions. This is the second or the third census around AD 6 or AD 7, somewhere around there. So he had a movement. He had a rebellion. Historians know about that, but his followers were scattered. His followers failed. Some believe that these zealots picked up from some of the remnants of Judas of Galilee and the zealot movement came from that, but his actual movement failed. Gamaliel knew this, and Gamaliel had studied the law of God and he knew enough from the law of God that God is sovereign over all things and these false movements come and they arise to test the hearts of Israel, but since they're false movements, they die out. So he gave them advice. Don't get caught up in the moment. Don't get caught up in the emotion. Don't do something rash. We would say today he was one of the cooler heads that prevailed. And third, he gives them their counsel proper there in verse 38. Stay away from these men. You don't have to do anything with them. And last, he gives his reasons. If the apostles are of men, their movement will fail. There'll be a flash in the pan. Political hotheads come and go. If they're not of God, their followers will dissipate. And for the most part, that is true. When God is behind something, the fruit will remain. Do you remember what Jesus told the apostles in John 15? He said in John 15, I've appointed you as apostles, and I've appointed you that you may bear fruit and that your fruit will remain. He promised them their fruit would remain. And so it did. And so we see when there was an attempt to kill the apostles, we can say the gospel of Jesus Christ cannot be killed. Yes, we could say that even if these apostles were killed, the gospel would go on. But the point was that God and Jesus wanted to bear testimony through them to the ends of the earth. This was their plan. And they wanted to kill them. But here this man stood up and said, no, this is not good. And their lives were preserved. The future of the entire church depended on this. And so we see the indestructible nature of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Luke actually lets an unbelieving Pharisee voice the words that he wants everyone to hear. If this movement is of men, it'll die out. If it is of God and you try to get in the way, you will be fighting against God and you won't succeed. Men are weak. God is strong. You don't want to be found fighting God. What a foolish thing to fight against God. You can't kill the gospel. You can't outlaw the gospel. You can't imprison the gospel. The gospel is unstoppable. Fourth and last, and quickly, verses 40 
through 42. The gospel of Jesus Christ cannot be intimidated. Boy, there's a lesson here. They took his advice. Amazing. And after calling the apostles in, they flogged them and ordered them, this would now be the second time, right, not to speak in the name of Jesus. There it is again. And then they what? Released them. Verse 41. So they, the apostles, went on their way from the presence of the council rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his what? Name. Shame for the name. And look at their zeal in verse 42. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Messiah. So they took his advice. They, they beat him. They flogged him. They were bleeding. They were hurt. This was no slap on the wrist, guys. Their bodies would take time to heal after this. They ordered them, don't you ever again speak in this name. See how that's going to work. And then they released them. The main witnesses of the gospel of Jesus Christ that the entire church of Jesus over 20 centuries would be built upon were just released from their authority. And when they went out, they went doing exactly what they had been doing before. But the first thing they did is they rejoiced. That's unbelievable, isn't it? When you suffer for the name of Jesus, they remembered the words of Jesus and the Beatitudes. Blessed are you and men cast insults at you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely on account of me. Rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great. I wish we thought more like that. I wish we thought that our lives down here are more about promoting the name of Jesus Christ and then if we suffer for that, we are greatly blessed. I wish we had that kind of a faith where we understood that if we go out into the world, we go out into our, where our supposed loved ones are, and we go out into the world, and we go to our workplace, and people step on us. And even if, if the politics of the day moves against us, if that happens against us, that's something to rejoice and be glad about. I wish we believed like that. I wish our faith could rise up like that of the apostles and say, I want to be counted worthy. I want to do something meaningful for the name Jesus and his kingdom. But often we just kind of dissipate after church and we just go do the same things that we do for the same reasons without really thinking about, I am here to be a servant of the word of God. If I speak the name of Christ and people look at me weird, that's great. That's a badge, wear it. And if you see one of your brothers and sisters and they're beaten down because of persecution, put an arm around them and love them and listen to them and pray for them. But you remind them, give them biblical encouragement. Hey, if you're suffering for the name of Jesus, that's special. That's special. Not everybody suffers for Jesus. If you're living right, I'm not talking about being obnoxious now, okay? If you're living right and you suffer for the name of Jesus, you are blessed. God has counted you worthy to suffer for his name. And by the way, keep right on preaching and teaching Jesus, yes? Keep right on working. Keep right on going. Don't let anyone slow you down. You're God's plan for spreading the word. This is 20 centuries later. It's still his plan. They go out and they do what they can do. You say, but what if they die? If they die, the word of God will go on. If some Christians get in prison, somehow it gets out. They were not intimidated. They couldn't even intimidate them. Imagine if someone said, you guys meet here next Sunday. We're going to beat you with, we're going to flog you until your back is bleeding. Would you come? Maybe once, and then after it happened, would you come back? They would, and they set an example for us because their lives were about Christ. 
They were following someone who was risen from the dead. This is not a game, guys. This is not a game. This is, this is our lives set before us. These are the examples God has given us to rejoice and to live for the spread of the word. We said we're servants of the word of God, servants of the word of God. That's the meaning of our lives. We're here to promote Jesus, not ourselves. Remember that, live for that. God bless you and strengthen you for that. Father God in heaven, give us the courage, give us the wisdom, give us the joy in our Christian walk to put aside worldliness so we can be full of your spirit as these men were and we can get out there and we can tell whoever's willing to listen. And if they're not willing to listen, keep walking until we find someone who is. Help us to have people with vision and leadership in this church to raise up the kind of ministries we need to spread your word. Father, help us to take advantage of the fact that the gospel is not outlawed and it's not imprisoned and no one is trying to kill us and no one right now is really trying to intimidate us. But if they were, Lord, that we would have courage to stand for the name of Jesus. Give us boldness. Give us a love for Jesus Christ. Return some of us to our first love that we may be kindled again, that fire that would burn inside of us to live for Christ. And Lord, be pleased in the way we live and the way we speak to honor Jesus Christ. For we prayed in his name and we've done it for the sake of his kingdom. And all God's people said, amen.